0: And so if I had an incident in class where I acted out or lashed out or whatever, you know, one of their favorite things to do to me is if the weather was nice, if it was in the summertime, they would actually put me out in the front of the house, in front of the neighborhood, the entire neighborhood could see this. They would put me out in the driveway and they would make me kneel on stones. And they would leave me there and I would have to kneel on these stones and my back would have to be up straight. My 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 ass could not sag. I had to be straight up with my knees on these stones and I'd have to stay there for hours. And if I started to sag, he'd come behind me with the belt and hit me until i stood up straight again on my knees
1: this is the knocking doors down podcast featuring celebrities experts and everyday people who have overcome adversities including addiction mental health and trauma to live purposeful lives and that's what knocking doors down is all about you might recognize this guest from the deadliest catch david sheets jr he spent 16 years in active addiction and a coma He's turned his life around and given it to his higher power. Not only does he have his clothing brand motivation and progress, he's become a motivational speaker, a mentor, and is doing ministry work as well. In our conversation, David opens up about his traumatic childhood in a way he has never done on any sort of video or audio recording. I was incredibly honored that he would be so vulnerable and strong at the same time. I know you or anyone you share this episode with is going to get so much value out of it. David is truly an extraordinary person. Do me a favor, click that link, get subscribed to the podcast and tell someone else that is looking for motivation, inspiration and stories of hope. Knocking doors down couldn't happen without 5150 LTM, a lifestyle brand with a purpose. That's right, part of the proceeds that are benefited from 5150 sales goes back to the Carlos Vieira Foundation. Now, if you want to get some of that cool swag, I'm wearing it right now. got my 5150 LTM hat and matching jacket. Well, you just click that link in the podcast description Use the code KDD20, get 20% off. That's right, KDD20, 20% off. All right, here's my guest, David Sheets Jr. David Sheets Jr., of course, known for uh, many people, the deadliest catch. Uh, It's good to talk with you, my brother.
0: Yeah, man, it's absolutely, it's, it's great to be here. I'm glad that we could finally connect i know i'm a hard guy to get a hold of but <laughs> i'm here i'm home i'm home for a while so i'm very excited that uh that you invited me on
1: no i'm I'm glad we worked it out and you got it in that busy schedule man and it's uh it's a real pleasure and an honor of course we've got the mutual uh respect love and admiration for our fellow friend higgy so appreciate him uh connecting us uh, as as um you know, my connections grow in the recovery community. But, you know, one of the things that w- we were sitting here uh, BSing before we got started and, and that you, you really hit me with because we were both talking about speaking and motivation. And I I do a lot of, you know, following different motivational people and it's part of what I love. But man, even when you were at your down and out, you're telling me, man, you're living in a tent, you know, still active in your addiction, but you were putting out active content every day that was still motivational.
0: Right. So, you know, I started listening to motivational speakers when I was probably around 16 or 17 years old. And, you know, I just kind of stumbled across it online. First person I stumbled across was Tony Robbins. Absolutely love that man to death. He is so genuine and he's so powerful. So much knowledge he has. And so I started listening to it. And as I got older, things got worse with with my addictions and my life choices. And, uh, you know, all throughout my 20s, pretty much there was I would have to say that the lowest point in my active addiction is when I was living in a tent in Willimantic, Connecticut. Uh, because that's where the good dope was. And I was literally eating out of dumpsters. My, my daily routine was get up, do whatever I had left over from the night before to get me moving and to go out into the city and dig through dumpsters for bottles and cans. And uh, and during that time, if you sift through my Facebook and you go back to those years, you'll actually find that even at my lowest points, I was still pushing out motivational content mm-hmm. because the, the biggest, the biggest reason why is because I just didn't want people to be where I was. And I was there for so long that I became so comfortable being where I was but I didn't want anyone else to join me, if that makes sense. Oh, you know, yeah. like I, I wanted people to know that they were better than this and that, you know, they could they could push to succeed and get clean and change their lives. I mean, dude, listen, I remember I started an all recovery meeting in Willamanic at a recovery center, like started that meeting when I was in active addiction. Because I I just wanted a place where people could come and talk about their struggles, and I wanted people to come together and be positive and lift each other up. I mean, that's how much it meant to me.
1: Yeah. How then? My question to you: That's so interesting. You you were still serving a purpose, and you you wanted people to understand through your your pain, your suffering. How then did you start to recognize? Hey, wait a minute! I'm also worth this. Because you turned your life around, brother. I mean, you know, death was
2: imminent.
0: Right. So, you know, I'm stubborn. (laughs)
2: Like (laughs) a lot of us.
0: (laughs) Um, I like to I like to have things my way. Um, One of the things that I've come to learn at 33 years old is that I am a glutton for punishment. And. For many, many, many years, for the better part of 20 years, um, I have beat my head against the wall trying to figure out how I can do what I want and get what I feel I deserve. And that's key right there. What I feel I deserve. Not what the father knows I deserve, you know, but for me, it was the coma. It was the coma in 2018. Uh, Back in 2018, uh, September, September 8th, I had got back from fishing. I was gone for almost a month. And I was clean, completely clean from heroin. And I came home and I decided, like I had many times before, that I could drink because that was okay. Drinking wasn't the issue. It was the crack in the heroin. That's what it was. So I decided to drink. And after I polished a good half gallon of whiskey, I decided then that I needed uh, some heroin. And I knew that the heroin was laced. I knew it had fentanyl in it. Um, I didn't care. And that put me out. Uh, The last thing I remember, you know, the girl I was dating at the time, I was, I stood up and, uh, and she, she put the needle in my arm and I woke up in a hospital and uh, they actually had to put, they had to put me into an induced coma because I could not breathe on my own. Reason why I could not breathe on my own is because when I hit the floor, I fell on my back and I immediately started vomiting and I was swallowing my own vomit um what what i was told by my girlfriend at the time is that she was on the phone with 911 she was on the phone with 911 while she was sucking the vomit out of my my airways she was trying to keep my airways cleared while the ambulance was on the way because my face was 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 ghost my face was dead pale i mean i was i was white um So she was trying to keep me alive while they were on their way. So they had to put me into a coma on day six. The doctors walked in and told her and her mother that they needed to think about um, pulling the plug because they did not believe that I was going to wake up. My body wasn't showing any signs of improvement and only by the grace of God did she decided not to pull that plug
2: because on the morning of day eight, I woke up. And so that what, what
0: followed that this is, this is how crazy addiction is. And this is one of many examples I have, but I feel like this is the most powerful example that I have to represent the sickness of addiction. So I woke up out of that coma that morning. My girlfriend walks into the hospital. She walks in the room. I looked at her. I said, where'd you come from? And she goes, I have a car and I showed up here. And I immediately looked looked at her and I said, I'm grabbing my AMA paperwork. She goes, you're out of your mind. And I said, no, I want my AMA paperwork. So the nurse comes in. I said, go get me my paperwork. I'm out of here. Mm. The doctor comes in. And says, Mr. Sheets, you can't even walk. You just came out of a coma within the last few hours. You still have fluid in your lungs. You basically have pneumonia. You've got no strength to you. You've got so many meds that we've pumped into you to keep, to, to keep you here. You can't just leave. And I looked right at her and I said, you have no legal right to, keep, to hold me here. I said, I want my AMA paper. So I signed my paperwork and they wheeled me out of the hospital. I did not walk out of the hospital. I was pushed out in a wheelchair. Within 15 minutes, I remember this like it was yesterday. Within 15 minutes, I stopped at the package store that was in the next town over. I got a fifth of Jack Daniels. Half of that was gone by the time I made it back to my girlfriend's parents' house. And as soon as I walked through the door, I looked at her and I said, where is that batch of heroin that we did the night that I overdosed? And of course, she hadn't touched it because she was scared to do it without me, because, mind you, she had overdosed 12 times in a two year period. And she looked at me and she said, I kept it, but I don't think you should do it. And I said, well, I don't really care what you think. Where is it? So. In less than three hours from waking up out of a coma, I was intoxicated and I had a needle in my arm with the very
2: same batch of heroin that put me into that coma. Wow. Good Lord.
1: I I very rarely get speechless, David. But yeah, it's the insanity of it all, isn't it?
0: It's it really is. And, you know, let me back up, because a lot of people that are going to listen to this are probably thinking to themselves, why? Well, and
1: I get the why that's the scary (laughs) part. I
0: I, I fucking get the why. And and but, you know, to be uh, to be completely honest, because when I tell that story, a lot of people just look at me with just puzzled and they're just like, how what was going through your mind? And honestly, the very first thought that came across my mind when I woke up and I looked at the ceiling
2: was, are you effing kidding me? I looked up and, I'm lo- and I was talking to God. I was talking directly to God.
0: Are you effing kidding me? I was pissed. I was so upset that I woke up. I couldn't understand why. Of all my friends that overdosed and got out of here, I, I was so angry at God that I woke up. So I went straight back into it. Yeah. And so what happened after that was um, we were moved to North Carolina. We were moved uh, down to Oak Island. And her parents basically looked at me and said, here's the vacation house. If you can get a job within 30 days, we will let you stay here. Just pay the utilities. We'll take care of the rest. Hmm. And I was still drinking at the time, which was fine with them because they were both high-functioning alcoholics. You know, drinking was okay. They just, didn't, they just didn't want us doing drugs. Um, so I got a job really quickly. I'm a man of many trades. Got a job really quick.
1: That seems to be a norm for us addicts that I find because we've had to have so many damn tools to, uh, survive and, and literally help with our quest of whatever our fixes, you know? Right. Like yeah, I became well, a really good bartender, uh, for catering because at the end there tend to be a lot left and I could just, Hey, can I grab a couple bottles? Sure. Right. You know. Right.
0: Yeah. So, um, so i got the job and everything was good and uh on october 20th 2018 is i woke up that morning and i looked at myself in the mirror and i said i can't do this mm. like i'm going to go back i'm i'm going to go i'm going to wind up in prison in the in the state of north carolina i'm going to get a new inmate number and i'm going to start this all over again and so Reluctantly, reluctantly, I said, I'm gonna to try to stay sober. I'm gonna to try to do this. And uh, and I started going to meetings and uh I I got saved. Um, it was the first time in my life that I took my sobriety seriously. I quit fishing, I mm-hmm. quit commercial fishing. Um, I worked a land job and And the storyline from then till now is just insane. It really is.
1: Yeah. Well, I want to get more into that. I got to ask you a question, though, because um, with the overdose, you're talking about the heroin filled with fentanyl. Do you know if you were Narcan backed by the emergency services?
0: So from what I understand is that they were hitting me multiple times with Narcan. Yeah. They, they they had to hit me multiple times in order to get me to, to come back, you, you know, to, in some instances. I mean, even with the girl I was dating at the time, you know, I could I could get her once with Narcan and bring her back. Pretty simple. I, I think there was one time where I had to hit her twice in a hotel room. But uh, they were they from what, from what the doctor told me when I woke up and I couldn't breathe. Uh, they said we've given you, we've given you multiple doses of Narcan. You cannot breathe on your own. We're putting you under.
1: Right, right. And with that, um, do you know the time that you were in the coma? Were they doing anything of? Uh, I don't know if weaning off would be, but I have heard of some people that have gone in, uh, uh, you know, with fentanyl, heroin, or not fentanyl. Yeah, fentanyl, heroin, or whatever, and they will kind of almost microdose for the wrong term or when you woke up were you in a complete state of withdrawal because when you said that desire to go use I'm thinking oh was he narcan and was he immediately in a withdrawal because I would imagine you were in a severe amount of a pain especially being a heroin user
0: so from what i understood is that they had me on a, a small drip uh while i was in the coma For because my body wasn't responding without it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I I don't exactly know what else they had me medicated with Uh, the doctor. I didn't even give the doctor time to explain herself. You know, she just she 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 basically told me in short, you are heavily medicated. You literally just
2: woke up not even two hours ago. You can't go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And I left <sighs>
1: <laughs> addiction, right? Uh, I want to touch on where things went from once you're in North Carolina, you're really working, if, like actually taking sobriety serious. But I got to ask, man, you know, um, it's just nine out of 10 trauma evident. What was childhood like? What were the things that you think? know in retrospect, that led you down that road.
0: You know, childhood for me. If you were on the outside looking in, you would have thought that we were, if there's any such thing, the perfect American family. You know, except for the fact of my father, because everybody knew he was batshit crazy. <laughs> um, but you know, I I grew up. I grew up in a family owned and operated a general contracting company. My grandfather, Frank sheets uh, was a coal miner from West Virginia, joined the Navy and retired high ranking. And when he got out, uh, he started a company, general contractor company. It was all family that worked. And so I didn't grow up without money. Um, I was well taken care of. And and by that, I mean, I was fed and clothed. The rough part about my childhood is how I was treated, mm-hmm. so to speak, how I was raised. Um, I grew up with my biological father and my stepmother. And so basically I was raised in a, extremely, extremely strict environment. Um, I was not allowed to go over friends' houses after school. I was actually brought to school by my stepmother because she worked for the bus company. So I rode her bus. Um, she drove for a special ed. Um, so I was, I was transported to school and home under her watch. Um, I was not allowed to play with the kids on the street. I was secluded to my bedroom. And if I was to play outside, I played by myself. Everything was about books and arithmetic. You know, most kids like to watch movies, play video games. I was locked in my room. I would be locked in my room for hours at a time. And I would have either a book in front of me that I would have to read through, or I would have like a math book in front of me that I would have to work through. Um, And I was abused, physically abused on pretty much a daily basis. I guess the best way I could describe it is they passed me back and forth. You know, I got more of the violent beatings from my father he was the one who enjoyed using the belt i have been i have been beaten right outside in my front driveway in front of an entire neighborhood um i've been thrown down staircases put through walls this is all before the age of 13 mind you so if you can imagine throwing a 9 year old boy down a
2: staircase um it was it was really it was really strict and it was really abusive. Um,
0: so it was really hard. I didn't have any type of freedoms, so to speak. You know, I think, uh, some of the toughest things I can remember is like, if my, if I had a bad day at school, I was in special ed. I was in a behavioral class. Go figure. (laughs) I had, not only did I have a, uh, not necessarily a learning disability, but I had a behavioral issue. And so if I had an incident in class where I acted out or lashed out or whatever, you know, one of their favorite things to do to me is if the weather was nice, if it was in the summertime, they would actually put me out in the front of the house, in front of the neighborhood, the entire neighborhood, could see this, they would put me out in the driveway and they would make me kneel on stones and they would leave me there and I would have to kneel on these stones and my back would have to be up straight. My, my, my ass could not sag. I had to be straight up with my knees on these stones and I'd have to stay there for hours. And if I started to sag, he'd come behind me with the belt and hit me until I stood up straight again on my knees. Um, and if the weather wasn't good, I would have to do it in the hallway on rice. So it was, it was, it was brutal. Um, But basically the family had had enough. My sister, my stepsister, all the kids from my stepmother's side, you know, my stepsister knew what was going on because she was really the only person that my parents would beat me in front of. And so, and when I say that, let me back up real quick. The only person that they would beat me in front of. So what I'm getting at is every when when people would come over that they would know ahead of time. So they would let me out of my room and they let me like be around the house or maybe they let me be outside riding my bike in in the cul-de-sac or whatever so that when people showed up they saw a little boy who was playing who was happy but as soon as they left it was back to you know get to your room lock the door don't make a sound i mean i used to i it was so bad to where there were times when my stepmother would come in see that i wasn't far enough ahead in the book She would pick up the book. She would beat me over the head with it. She would tell me that I was never going to amount to anything and that I was useless. And when she walked out of the room, she'd forget to lock the door. So I haven't eaten anything or had anything to drink in hours. So I used to sneak out of my room and this was upstairs. I would sneak out of my room and I would tiptoe across the hallway to the bathroom and I would have to take the cup that you use to rinse your mouth out after brushing your teeth. And I would dip that into the toilet so that I could have a drink of water because if they heard the faucet go off, she would come up and she would beat me. So it was it was really strict and it was really violent. And it got to a point where the kids. Got together. And was like, we need to do something because as I got older, it only got worse. You know, I, I believe that I did attempt to run away at one point. Um, I didn't get on the school bus. I, I ran away with some kids who had parents who were also beating them. And uh the police came and picked me up. This is Groton, this was Groton City Police Department back in Connecticut, came to pick me up. And of course, all the cops knew me. They knew who I was. I mean, they knew my grandfather. My my grandfather owned most of of Groton being a developer. And I'll never forget this. We're on our way back to the house. And the cop looks in the rear view at me and he goes, David, why do you keep running away? Or no, I'm sorry. He said, David, why did you run away? And I said, because my dad beats me. And he said, "Okay." he goes, we're going to fix this. So we pull up to the house, get out, walk inside. And the cops standing in front of me and my, my father and my mother are at the table. And they're like, yeah, we found him. He was down in such and such neighborhood. <clears throat> uh, However, Mr. Sheets. Your son tells me the reason why he ran away is because you beat him. And I froze. Because it was the first time in my life that I told an adult other than my friends at school that I was being beaten. And my father, being the Picasso that he is, you know, kind of just laughed it off and said, I, he called the cop by his name because he knew him. He said, listen, he goes, I don't beat my son. He goes, I discipline him. He goes, I would never beat my son. And he goes, yeah, he goes, I get that. You know, sometimes kids, you know, they get a little out of hand. So he says, All right, have a great night. And he walks out the door. As soon as that police car pulls away, my father comes flying across the kitchen, picks me up, slams me into the glass door. The glass breaks. He throws me on the floor. He stands over me. He takes his belt off and he starts beating me from my throat, whipping me back and forth, full throttle. Starts at my throat and makes his way all the way down my feet. Now, mind you, During the time that he's doing this, I had crawled through the kitchen. I was crawling down the hallway. I was trying to crawl back to my room and I was screaming and crying for him to stop. And he followed me all the way to my bedroom. I climbed down a flight of stairs through the living room and up an entire flight of stairs to the second floor to my bedroom before my father stopped violently beating me from head to toe with a leather belt. And at that point he stopped and walked away. So what ended up happening was the family, the
2: kids got together and said, we can't let this happen anymore. And they called DCF, Department of Child and Family and they caught
0: wind of it and on the day that i went into school i had been beaten once again because i had a bad report at school and i was passed back and forth my stepmother i was sitting at the center aisle eating my food and i didn't want to eat it because the rule in the house was if you don't eat it for breakfast, you have to eat it for dinner. Well, this is cream of wheat. And it she made it lumpy on purpose. I swear she made it lumpy on purpose because she knew how awful it was for me to try to eat it. She knew I didn't like it. This is the sinister stuff that she used to do. My stepmother was more of the sinister type. Mm. My father was more of the demonic, abusive type, you know. So... I couldn't eat the food. I mean, I literally couldn't. She wouldn't even heat it up for me. And she's sitting there telling me to eat it and eat it. And I, and I start crying because I'm so hungry. I hadn't eaten since the night before. I just want food. I can't eat this cream of wheat because she wouldn't even heat it up. So she decides to pick up the wooden spoon and she starts beating me across the face with it. So she starts beating me across the face with the wooden spoon And then she takes her hand and she puts it on my face and she shoves me off the stool. So I go flying backwards and I hit the floor. And again, I'm a kid. This is all before
2: 13 years of age. I hit the floor and my father is basically sitting there laughing at me.
0: And I'm screaming, crying because I just got beat in the face with a wooden spoon and shoved off of a stool. Um, then he starts to beat me with his belt. So I go to school and I got bruises and what they did to me all the time, even in the summer months is when they beat me, if I was too bruised, like if you could see it from the throat up or whatever, they wouldn't send me to school, but if they could cover the bruises, they would. So it's June,
2: Yeah, it's
0: June in new England. Weather's nice. Here I come into school. All the kids are wearing short sleeves. I come in with a long sleeve shirt on. They call me into the office. They knew right away what was going on. Well, they knew now what was going on. You know, they call me into the nurse's
2: office. The nurse says, I need you to pull up your sleeves. I said, I can't do that. She goes, David, I always get emotional at this part (laughs) because this was like a huge this was a huge turning
0: point in my childhood but um, she said David I really need you to trust me and I need you to pull up your sleeves and I was so scared because I remembered what the cop did and I'm like no I don't want to do this and she goes if you don't do it we're going to have to do it for you and so I pull
2: up my sleeve and the bruises are like, they're black. And basically, you know, there was a counselor there
0: and, you know, she looked at me and she said, nobody's ever going to hurt you again. And so they brought me, I was escorted to the house by multiple police officers because they don't even knew what was
2: going on. And <clears throat> the cops walk in there and they're going through the house. And
0: my father's flipping out and my stepmother's flipping out. And the female officer comes up to me. She gets down on one knee and she says, Hey, she goes, You're going to be okay. We're taking you out of here. They're not going to hurt you anymore. And I looked at her and I said, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I just, I just want to go to bed. I was so scared. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say anything. And she goes, we're going to take you out of here. We're going to put you someplace safe. So they took me out of the house. They had clothes for me. They took me out of the house. And this started a, um, This started a whole thing with the Department of Children and Families uh, charging and the state of Connecticut, charging my father with abuse charges. What conspired over the next few months, and and again, I want to say that this was at 13 years of age. What conspired over the next few months is I was put into foster care and I was going to court. I'm going to court. My stepmother's kids are testifying in court over what they've seen and what they know is going on. And then came my turn.
2: It was my turn to testify. And the judge. I go up there, I'm on the stand and
0: the prosecutor walks up and they start asking questions and I wouldn't answer anything. Finally, the judge looks over at me and he goes, David, I need you to answer the questions. I looked at the judge and I said, my father does not beat me. My parents have never laid a hand on me. I could. I was so afraid. I was so scared. And all I wanted to do was go home. I just wanted to go home and I wanted to go back to my room because that was the only safe place It was the only place I was ever safe was in my room.
2: And I just wanted to go back home and I wanted to go to my room and I wanted it all to be over. So I wouldn't admit to the abuse. And what ended
0: up happening was, (laughs) and this
2: (laughs) may I add, this is what's wrong with the judicial system and Child Protective Services because I wouldn't admit to the abuse. Me being a 13-year-old boy who was
0: beaten like a dog on almost a daily basis
2: for most of his life, they let me out of foster care and they sent me back home. And they told him that he needed to go to anger management. But he was still facing abuse charges. Hmm. So I go home. The very first night that I'm back in the house. I get woken up. And again, I mean, I I know I'm saying this a lot,
0: but it's like it just happened yesterday. It's 1130 at night.
2: And I get woken up by my stepmother. She's packing these huge construct contractor bags with all my clothes. She says, Get up, go downstairs. I said, For what? She goes, Get up and go downstairs now. Okay.
0: So I go downstairs. I walk out. I walk out the front door. She, She told me, She says, Go outside. Your father's out in the driveway. And I'm shaking. I mean, I am shaking. I'm sweating. I'm so scared because in my mind, I'm going, I'm about to get beat. Like, mm-hmm. this is going to be bad. Yeah. So I walk outside and my father is standing there in
2: front of his pickup truck. And there's this woman standing in front of him.
0: And I'm, and I'm like, you know, it's 1130 at night and I'm in my PJs. I got no shoes on. And I said, what's wrong? And my father looks at me and he goes, David, this is your mother.
2: Oh, shit. And I'm like, what? And he goes, this is your mom. You've never met her before, but this is your biological mother. Maddie is not your real mom. You're going to go live with her. I start bawling. I'm bawling my eyes out.
0: I run inside and I wrap my arms around my stepmother and I'm screaming and I'm going, please don't let me go. Because I don't, I've never seen this woman a day before in my life.
1: Right. I don't know what's going,
0: I'm like, I don't know what is going on. And so let me back up really quick because I want to highlight on that. So growing up as a kid, the way my parents, this is the psychological abuse. There was physical mental, psychological abuse that I suffered from them. So this is where the psychology comes in. Depending on the day, and it did vary, depending on how much of a good boy I was or how bad I was doing in school, some days they would look at me and be like, if you continue acting the way you're acting and if you can't get your shit together, we're going to give you away to your real mother. She's a drug addict who left you And we're going to go make you live with her. And then the next day, you know, they would be like, oh, you're doing so good. And, you know, this is your real mom. She's had you since birth. This is your mother. You don't have anybody else, you know, because as a kid, I would go, well, wait a minute. But you said my real mom. Oh, no, no, no. This is your real mother. This woman right here. She's rich. She had you. She raised you. So there was a lot of psychological going on there. Right, and I was so confused. So I run inside. I'm, my arms are wrapped around her, <laughs> and I'm screaming, and I'm saying, "Please, mom, do not let me go with that lady. Please, don't let me go." And uh, you know, she just—I got my arms wrapped around her from the back, and she just kind of pats her hand on my on my hand and said, "It'll be okay. That's your mother. Go with her now. We don't want you anymore." We don't want you anymore. So I, (laughs) so I turn around and I'm, and I'm crying. I'm just absolutely shattered because all I want is my room. I just want to go back to my room. I want to go back to my room. I want to go back to bed. I want all of this to be over. I just want to be okay. Go outside. My bags are packed. We're at the, now we're at the end of the driveway. There's a cab sitting at the end of the driveway there's another woman inside the cab and there's a little boy and <clears throat> my mother my biological mother a woman i've never seen a day in my life she looks at me and she says come on dj you're going to come with me she goes that's your auntie in the car and that's your little brother in the back seat his name's ryan and i'm like i don't want to go She she goes, I understand. She goes, just come with me, DJ. It's okay. Everything's
2: going to be okay. And the very last thing I remember my father saying is, I've signed the paperwork.
0: Everything's going to be okay. You take them. I don't want nothing to do with them. I don't want nothing to do with them. That was the last thing my father said to me
2: at that night. And it would be years before I see him again.
0: So I get into this car with this woman, these two women who have never seen a day in my life. I got this little boy next to me who's just a little younger than I am, who apparently is my younger brother. And we take off. And the the crazy thing is, is that when we pull up to her house, she lived four blocks from me.
1: Holy shit.
2: She was living 4 blocks from me. For 13 years right around the corner. Yeah. Wow. <sighs> Jesus, David. So there was a little there was a little trauma there.
1: Yeah. I'm still trying to catch up from some of the other stuff. Sorry I kind of broke down crying there. So
0: and I mean, things just, things just got worse. Things got worse from there. I mean, it's, uh, you know, within six months of living with her, you know, I'll never forget we were driving down, we were coming down Clarence B Sharp, coming through Groton City. And this is iconic right here. This is an iconic piece of the story. Um, we we're coming down Clarence B Sharp Highway, and we're passing Groton City Police Department and I looked at my mother and I said, Mom, would you mind if I go and hang out with some friends after school? And she looks right at me as we're passing the police department. She looks right at me and she says, DJ, you can go play with your friends. All I ask is that you don't bring home the cops. Now, my older brother was already in prison. My older mm-hmm. brother, I'm, I'm sorry, he was already in juvenile detention for stealing motorcycles. All three, all three of us boys have different dads. <laughs> My younger brother um, was a, a mama's boy. And thank God he to this day is still a mama's boy. He's still living with mom. I don't even care. The kid turned out to be a saint. <laughs>
1: um,
0: but, you know, within six months, you know, the bottom line is I went from living such a disciplined, structured, sheltered, abusive life. That when I got introduced to my mother at thirteen years old she didn't know what to do with me Sure and she wanted me to be a boy she wanted me to be a kid she wanted me to have friends yeah. but I didn't understand boundaries and I didn't understand healthy relationships. I didn't understand love, direction, yeah. obedience, common sense yeah the only thing the only thing I knew was... Go to school, keep your mouth shut, don't tell anybody about what's going on at home. Grab your grab your homework, go home, do it, get beat, and then go back to school the next day. Yeah. And then she says, go play. Well, within six months, I brought the cops home. Yeah. Within six months, the cops were knocking at the door. And the (laughs) you know, DCF was still involved because there was a transitioning and Basically make a long story short, I was put into a first a shelter and then a residential facility for boys and girls because the state deemed my mother unfit to parent me. So what happened during that two year period is basically I was placed into this home by the state, And the stipulations were the state recognized in court. They said this in court. They said, we recognize that we failed by allowing the mother to take him out of an abusive environment into her home without any type of transition, without Mm -hmm. any type of supervision. So, What we are going to do is we are going to place him in this boy's home and we are going to put him into individual counseling and we're going to put him and his mother into family counseling so they can be reunited the right way. Because if you remember back to how I said we were reunited, that's like about as traumatic as it gets. Yeah. So we're going to let this process play out. Well, here was the problem with that. My mother enjoyed. Boyfriends mm. and she enjoyed a lot of boyfriends. And I understand now when I showed up why my younger brother was always in his room playing video games because every day that I was coming home from school or from wherever I was running around from, there was a different guy that was walking out of the bedroom putting his belt back on. Sure. So, you know, basically she wasn't showing up for the counseling sessions. And I was basically just forgotten about in this boy's home. Mm-hmm. Also, during that time period, I'm 14 years old. Um, I I'd, Obviously, I'd already been a juvenile and everything. So I'm in this boy's home. And during that time, I was raped by an older man. So I remember it, you know, and this is and this is something that is also a huge turning point in my childhood because I had already grown up in such an abusive, both mental and physical, psychological, abusive environment. I get away from it and I feel like I'm finally protected by all of these people and then I wind up being bullied by an older person and I wind up basically being targeted and trapped in a bathroom in the middle of the night and repeatedly raped and then told that if I say anything, I'm going to be killed. And so that went from that night to a few more times where he would walk into the room because I was in a room by myself. The other kid had left, walk into my room and continue to rape me. So now you have, here I am. I've already gone through the physical abuse, the mental, the psychological And now I've been raped and literally any bit of dignity, any bit of identity, any bit of anything that a young boy is supposed to feel has officially been stripped. And on top of that, I'm stuck here. I can't get away from this person because my mother can't even show up for a freaking counseling session so I can go home.
1: David, if I could hug you right now, I would, man. You're an amazing person to be where you are now.
2: Right. and no, I mean, um,
1: it took a long time. <laughs> I know. Um, sorry, I'm a little overwhelmed. Some of the stuff I can relate to, some of the stuff I know that my dad went through, and, you know, big lineage of addiction in my family. And so I've just, um, man. <laughs> i just love you you're amazing i don't know what else to say to be where you are now and have done the work that you've done i'm beyond proud of you it's uh very few times i've gotten speechless but this is one of them because um boy yeah let's get to uh (laughs) god i just i'm I'm just part of my language i'm fucking baffled i mean yeah everything about you know mentally emotionally physically spiritually now sexually everything has been stripped away i mean you know and people go i just love. i can't stand anymore well you know that bad kid it's like well you don't know what the fuck is going on at their home you don't know what's happened to them you don't know what it is do you think they nobody no no one is born going boy i really hope to strive to be a bad kid and and i hope a lot of people hear this this episode to understand and (sighs) Yeah. Sorry. It just, it angers me for you. And I know that you've done a lot of work, but yeah,
0: it has. And I mean, you know, that's basically after all that happened and I was finally introduced back into her life, I ran the streets and from basically, uh, 14 to, uh, the better part of 28, you know, I was in and out of the streets. Um, You know, I got my, I call it my good enough diploma, my GED. Mm -hmm. I got that in prison um, because I couldn't keep it together in schools enough. And, you know, all through my 20s was just active addiction. I mean, we don't have to go into war stories. We all know where it led. You know, there was a lot of homelessness for sure. There was a lot of turmoil and ruining relationships. And of course, this whole time I'm running back and forth from sea. You know, I'm, I'm running out to sea. I started commercial fishing in 2010 when I got out of prison. I was 20 years old. I was coming off a 26-month stretch. And I started commercial fishing because I needed to escape. I needed to get back to my room. I needed to get back to my room. I needed yeah. to get back to my safe space. And the only place where I felt safe was at sea in a fish hole by myself. <laughs> and, you know, the ocean gave me. The the ocean gave me safety. The ocean was where nobody could touch me. Nobody could beat me. Nobody could uh, give up on me or abandon me, you know? And so I started fishing on the East Coast. And um, I fished the entire East Coast throughout the years. And... You know, it was my safe haven. If it wasn't for commercial fishing, we would not be having this conversation. I promise you that because all the time that I spent out at sea versus the little time I spent on land, that time at sea kept me alive. Hmm. Even though I did get to a point where I brought my drugs with me, you know, I was shooting heroin out in winter seasons, 20 foot seas, battling storms, and I'm in the bathroom trying to hit myself in the arm because I'm dope sick and I got to lead a crew. um, you know, I, I definitely went through that phase of my addiction as well, but you know, the job saved me. And so, you know, from that point, from that point on, I do want to point out though, because I'm sure we're going to touch on this in a little bit. When I was in prison at 18 years old, I remember I was sitting in my cell one day and I decided to sit down and, and try to come up with a list of where I wanted to be in five years. Right. And on that list, I wrote that I wanted to work with inner city kids and I wanted to um, create a gym where kids could come off the street and have a safe place to learn how to do that in my, in my younger years. I was actually poking crack at 7, 16, 17 years old and going to the boxing gym. It was insane. But at any rate, I wanted a gym where kids could come in And have a positive thing to do instead of gangs, because I had joined a gang when I was in prison and uh, and have mentorship and have positive people in their life who are going to push them to do better. And um, I, I I'm so excited at the fact that here I am, I just came home from fishing and uh, I just joined a ministry that actually goes into some of the roughest neighborhoods here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And we preach the gospel to these kids. And we preach the gospel to gangbangers and people who are lost in active addiction. It's a huge time period, right? From when I was 18 in a prison cell and I'm 33 today but I'm finally living out my purpose.
1: Yeah. You well, know, it's just crazy. That's the funny thing about, uh, what is this saying? Uh, you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Right. Uh, you know, uh, I, I mean, I never expected to be doing what I'm doing now. And it's, um, it's weird how we, we can create those visions of self and, uh, oddly come to fruition as it has. And, um, gosh everything you've just been through to be where you're at and doing what you're doing and um you know uh, like all that angst i you know just like letting so much just the healing and going and being a family man now and a loving husband and and being such of service to so many others it's um it's a beautiful power when you you know when people maybe newcomers if they're listening or you got someone you love that's that's uh, inactive addiction or, and seeking recovery. What it is when we get that spiritual awakening, man, that's one of the most powerful things that will ever occur in our life. Right.
0: And, you know, I want to touch real quick on that whole family man and kids and everything. Mind you, that's happened in the last year. Right. You know, like my life has changed dramatically in a lot. I'm a coastal boy. I grew up on the East Coast and living in the middle of the freaking country.
1: Like,
0: <laughs> like God. God introduced me to this amazing God-fearing woman. And, uh, and and it's because of our relationship that I've become closer to God. Yeah. And, you know, have making, having a relationship with Jesus. And I mean, I say again, and we talked about this before I got on here, about my recent relapse. You know, I had a, a relapse on my honeymoon. Um, you know, so so I'm a newcomer all over again. You know, even though I had that time span and, and things were things were happening so fast. I mean, I wound up 2019, you know, I wound up uh, Nick McGlashan from the Summer Bay. The Deadliest Catch show calls me up, says, hey, you want to go fishing? I yeah. get on there. I'm filming with Discovery the last couple of years. You know, that's been a lot of fun. I just recently walked away from that. Um, you know, The motivation and progress, the clothing company, the Facebook private group that I started when I was in the midst of my depression, I wanted people to have a place to go where they could motivate and inspire people and, uh, and all of the good stuff that's come with all of that, you know, one bad decision and I'm now back on track again. So, you know, that's, that's one of the things that's huge because, I started going in and out of the rooms when I was 17 years old. I'm 33. So, the newcomer, you know, if there is anybody listening who maybe you had a a stretch of sobriety and and you fell, don't stay there. Please don't stay there because, you know, I had so much going for me when I did fall that I felt guilty. And I was like, no, I can't do this. I've got too many people depending on me. I have a family. I have a wife depending on me. I have a household depending on me, you know. And then after that, of course, came all of the the people, you know, the people who have followed me, who follow my content, you know, the the group itself and, and the clothing company and just everything that God gave me. You know, it was like a reminder, like, no, 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 no. We can't stay here. We got to fix this. Like, get up, keep going, you know? So that's huge.
1: Yeah, I know all too well, because I'll be uh, February 15th, two years after my last relapse. And um, the last one lasted a night and into my third beer. Um, And when I've shared that with people, they're like, oh, you know, well, relapse was part of your recovery. No, 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 no. Relapse was part of my addiction right me getting yeah. me getting on the horn and talking with two individuals that have been amazing mentors one now my sponsor that's recovery and and right. them helping me shed the shame of it really quick because if i sh- sat in the shame and guilt then it was going to be off to the races again and everything i had worked for <coughs> like you said all those responsibilities the relationships the genuine bonds connections gone you know right. and, and those those uh i I knew there was more value in in all of that and and just genuine everything over the the thing that that booze will make me feel for a bit until i wake up the next day hung over then chase the dragon again and keep going to you know um and and that was again that was my second spiritual awakening there to have that realization
0: yeah you know i i tend to stay out of the politics of it all. Um, But I, myself, that whole relapse is a part of recovery thing. As far as I'm concerned, relapse kills people. Yeah. That's what relapse does. Relapse kills people. We're, we're losing tens of thousands of people to a relapse. We're losing tens of thousands of people to addiction. You know, um, I'm, I'm very fortunate that when I when I relapsed that I caught it as soon as I did, you know, even if it was just alcohol, because once again, I had, I'm like, man, I'm in the Bahamas. Things are great. I'm married. I'm gonna have a drink. No, <laughs> it's a Terrible idea. And the events that followed were terrible. And, you know, I really hurt my wife with that, you know, and, um, because she met me as a God fearing man. And so you know, I get on and, and, you know, the thing is, is not only did I hurt her, not only did I betray her trust, but, you know, we get home and two days later, I jump on a plane and I go back to Alaska because I got to go cod fishing, you know, mm-hmm. it's cod season, you know, it's time to go. Um, and so, you know, basically where I'm at now is my recovery is, you know, Jesus is first for me, um. I've come to understand because I've had people ask me like, how do you believe in God after everything terrible that's happened to you? And I am a firm believer that God did not mean for me to grow up in such a violent home. God did not mean for me to get raped. God did not mean for me to get abandoned or anything. That is, that is the will of man because God gave man free will. You know, it wasn't God's fault. What happened to me, but it is God's promise to use what happened to me to help others you know he's he's going jesus is going to use my testimony to impact people and that is why i am so uh vocal with my story that's why i'm so honest that you know the things that i i value about my entire being is my transparency my integrity, and my brutal honesty. You know, when I started talking about the rape, I first admitted that happening in and when I was sharing my story in a church and people were like blown away. Like the look on people's faces were like, did he really just admit that? In front of complete strangers, you know? And um, what I've come to understand is that the more I talk about it, the more I heal from it and the more it helps people. Because I've had people reach out to me and be like, dude, thank you so much because this is what happened to me and I've kept it a secret and I don't want it to be a secret anymore. And then I can in turn help that person point him in the right direction to get that help. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's the same thing. <clears throat> it's the same thing with my relapse. <clears throat> I had people, I had people in recovery that told me don't say anything. Like mm. it's nobody's business. You're you're a public figure. Don't say nothing. You've got this following and these people think you're this and that like you don't owe anybody shit. And I'm like, "No. I'm not going to keep it a secret from people." I'm going to let these guys, I'm going to let people know, yeah, hey, I screwed up.
2: Yeah.
0: I had a weak moment. I screwed up. But hey, guess what? I'm going to correct it and I'm going to come back stronger. And everything is still rolling. We're mm-hmm. still, I'm still here. I'm still pushing everything. You know, I messed up. So transparency, integrity, brutal honesty, that stuff is really important to me. And I, and I, I hold that very near and dear to my heart.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that, David. Yeah. I, uh, I sat with a lot of guilt and shame after the last, uh, last relapse and, um, it felt really good to get it out. Unfortunately, I waited up until about a year back into, you know, being sober continuously, but it, it weighed on me forever. It really did. Yeah. It it felt like shit. It just, it, 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 it did. It weighed me down. Um, but you're right. Yeah. There's something about when we share this stuff that it, uh, I forget who said, I think it was uh, Adam Jablin, gentleman's been on here, has become an indirect mentor. He said, when we share our stories, it, it, it lightens the load because more hands are lifting the weight, you know?
2: Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely.
0: And, and I mean, that's, you know, that's the biggest thing. Our, our testimonies, our stories are someone else's survival guide. That's the bottom line. Because somebody's gonna hear it, and they're gonna and they're gonna they're gonna be able to identify and they're gonna be like, "This dude's talking to me like I've been there I've everything this dude's gone through like I've been there, and he made it, he's making it right, man I think I'm gonna give this a shot yeah. you know I've had multiple people reach out to me like that, multiple people you know i just I just had a guy last night while I was out doing ministry work um I had a gentleman reach out to me from Scotland and he's like, he's like, man, he goes, I've been following you. And you know, something about your, your faith. He goes, I just, I don't get it. He's like, my parents were alcoholics and you know, I, I've got my issues. He goes, but I'm not too keen on this God thing, but man, I watch you with your faith. And you know, I just want to know, like, can we talk about it? And, And, you know, so I'm going to have a conversation with a guy from Scotland about my faith. But my point is, whether it's your faith or your recovery or both or whatever, you know, people see you doing it and they want to know how you're doing it. And that's where the power comes in when they reach out and say, hey, can you talk to me? Can we have a conversation? Absolutely. Let's talk. You know, that's powerful right there.
1: Well David, we're going to have to uh do a follow up down the line man cuz boy um no insult to anyone. I just I've I, I've felt so much of your story there. There's a few times I almost went, "Hey, can we cut for a minute? I'm going to have to go cry, wash up and come back." Um but I held it together and I sincerely meant what I said about you you know, you're such a beautiful person to take all that and what you're doing now and um yeah, it's it's a real pleasure. Um, but hey, let's have some fun before we end this, All right? Sure. Cool. All right. well I'm gonna leave you with the final words, but we're gonna do some random questions here just so we can lighten the load on both of us all <laughs> right. a little bit. All right, um, this is always a fun one. Uh, they decided to make a movie about your life. What uh, Who do you want to play you as an adult? What actor?
0: Who would I like to play? Me as an adult. Wow. You know what? I <laughs> I would have to go with Tom Hanks. Yeah, I like Tom Hanks. I've always I've always enjoyed his movies. I th- I think his characters, the character roles that he's taken on, or I think he's always just done a tremendous job. Agree. Of course, he's like. Of course, he's like way too old now. <laughs> but you know, if they could like. If they could like do some makeup or something and help them look you know 30 years younger de-age um, him a bit at technologies
1: yeah. there they can do it
0: yeah you know? they can totally do that but i mean he's he's a hell of a character like, he's a hell of a man and, and uh, i really respect his character
1: yeah i had somebody ask me that once and i said mark hamill they're like luke skywalker i'm like hell yeah the most underrated <laughs> actor out there that guy is talented in a way that people have never been able to see Right. Uh, Uh, so you're, you're, uh, you're out fishing, uh, you know, as you did, but you can only have one music artist, like a greatest hits with you in one movie. What are they?
0: A greatest hits artist. So I'm definitely bringing Kenny Rogers with me.
1: Really? The gambler. Yes. Hell yeah. Yes.
0: Kenny Rogers is coming with me, um, in a movie. Man, that's that's a tough one. The movie would be hard because um, I'm so old school because there's a lot of new movies that I haven't seen in years. How about but, six uh, pack?
1: <laughs> if, I, I mean, if,
0: if I could, if I could bring it back to, to to what I did remember, I mean, I'd have to go with. I mean,
1: Armageddon was a good one. Yeah, that's fun. I could, I could do Armageddon <laughs> <laughs> right on. I was thinking if you, after you mentioned Kenny Rogers bring Six Pack, the one where he's uh, the race car driver, you know, oh, trying to right. work up the NASCAR. Yeah. Uh, favorite Kenny Rogers song? Uh,
0: would have to be... Uh, man, there's so many good ones. I know. I mean, there is. There's so many good ones. I mean, The Gambler, of course. But... Uh, Yeah, I have to go with the gambler because I mean, that's and I mean, that's 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 only because like the the good memories I have from being a kid was like, that's one that was always playing on the radio, you know, back when tapes were put in trucks. Yeah, you
1: know, (laughs) yeah, I do remember. I remember eight tracks. That's how much older I am than you. Uh, Uh, yeah, no, for me, it's always love will turn you around. Cause I remember we got, uh, racing was big in my household. So we had a VHS copy, a six pack and that song, you know, started the movie and, um, you know, just always loved that song. Kenny Rogers. He played here about where I, where I live. It was a gosh, it's about two and a half years before his passing. So that was, that yeah. was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. Um, okay. You could have one superpower, anyone, what would it be? healing do you know you're the only other person when people always ask what mine is that said that that's mine
0: healing if if i could heal people i mean that's why i created motivation and progress that's why i created the inspirational clothing brand because i just that's why i do motivational speaking that's why i do ministry work because i just want to heal people i just want people to be better yeah
1: Uh, David, uh, people want to find out more about you, uh, motivation and progress, the clothing brand, all that, throw it out to them. How can they find it? We'll make sure to get the links in the description.
0: Yeah. So you can go. So motivation and progress, it's a private group. So anything that is shared is, you know, only the group can see it, uh, any lives that are done or anything like that. Uh, that is the private group. And we also have the clothing brand. It's motivation and progress dot shop, not dot com, dot shop. Uh, you can follow me, David Sheets Jr. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. I'm building my TikTok right now. I'm trying to keep up with these kids. It's insane. But I got the Facebook and the Instagram down. And that's where you can find all of my uh, daily motivational content, all of my You know, gospel. I do a lot of um I do a lot of verses and everything on there. So it's always positive, it's always uplifting, and that's how you can follow me.
1: Right on, brother. I appreciate yeah. I'm trying to figure out the TikTok still too. It's just it's
0: hard. You know what you gotta do? You gotta give it to a 12-year-old.
1: Exactly. And and (laughs) exactly. And my my teenagers could care less, especially my son. Yeah. Uh, It's insane. I know. Uh David, I like to leave the guests with uh, the, you know, final thoughts where whatever you would want to share with people um, that um, it's your time.
0: So, you know, closing out, I just want the listeners to always remember that the life in front of you is far more important than the life behind you. It, it truly, it does matter to an extent what we have gone through But the most important thing that we remember is that we can heal from it. All we have to do is seek the help, seek the answers. And I promise you that each and every single person who is listening to this, who comes across it, I promise you that you have so much potential to be the very best person you can be. The only thing you have to do is believe in yourself. If you can believe it, you can achieve it, and that's it.
1: This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast, featuring celebrities, experts, and everyday people who have overcome adversities, including addiction,
3: mental health, and trauma, to live purposeful lives. And that's what Knocking Doors Down is all about. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors privacy is of the utmost importance to us for those wishing anonymity people places and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests this website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page. This podcast is owned by KDD Media
2: Company.